Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. Before we get started, I have to say thank you. Thank you to every one of you out there. Not only have we passed 2 million downloads for July, but we've passed 22 million downloads since we started last February. I cannot say thank you enough, but I need to ask you one more favor. Share the podcast with your friends, your family, anybody who you think is interested and dedicated to preserving American democracy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all you do. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. This is part two of our latest conversation with Lincoln Project Senior Advisors Trigby Olson and Jeff Timmer about the 2022 midterm elections. If you didn't catch part one of our conversation, I welcome you to give it a listen. Now, let's get back to it. All right, guys. So let's talk about some of the key races in the general that we think are important for democracy and are a little bit all over the map, literally. So we talked a little bit about Nevada. We've already discussed Arizona. We want to talk about Missouri and the insanity there. Florida, Texas, and the fascinating dynamic occurring here in my own state of Utah. So let's talk a little bit about Nevada first, Trigby. So in the governor's race, you've got Steve Sisolak going up against former Las Vegas Metro Sheriff Joe Lombardo. You know, it shows again, like we've seen in some of these other races, Sisolak's up three or four, but not at 50. You know, I think he's a generally well thought of guy. The last time I was out there, he seemed to be well positioned, which is if you talk to progressives, they think he's a Republican. If you talk to Republicans, they think he's a wacko progressive. So, you know, he's <laughs> he's naturally triangulating the joint. So how do you see that race? You know, we scored that race 18, which the existential races are 20. And then you have a bunch of races that we scored as 18. It's a huge race and it's a huge race for a few reasons. One. Who's the governor in Nevada matters in presidential politics because that race is going to impact the secretary of state's race in Nevada, of course, is a swing state. You know, our colleague, our peer, Stuart Stevens, every time he talks, he brings up the idea that the top of the ballot candidate, the governor in the state of Nevada, tends to be the vote driver for down ballot races. Well, in Nevada, you have a huge Senate race between Adam Laxalt and Cortez Mastow, and you've got three Democrat House seats that are all marginal. And in fact, there was polling that came out that, quite honestly, much like some of these other states, shows Sisolak at 46, Cortez Mastow at maybe like 44, and those House Democrats all ahead, but all down around 41, 42, and only by a point or two. So that Sisolak race is going to be the driver. Absolutely. And, and I think, as we talked about in the first part, the very real erosion, especially among younger Hispanic males, is, I think, in part, explains what could be going on in Nevada. We're seeing a continuing realignment of the electorate here. 
I guess if you first look at the demographics in the state, you would think that it's likely to be more democratic than these polls appear, more likely in line with what we've seen over the last 20 years. But Republicans have done well in Nevada over the last couple of decades. They've had the governor's mansion before Sisolak for a couple of terms been in and out of the U.S. Senate seats out of Nevada with John Enzen and Dean Heller. And Nevada always seems to be this place where these top of the ticket races, especially for U.S. Senate, boil down to really a couple thousand votes. Harry Reid was able to famously always hold on, but just barely. And when I look at all of these existential or existential light states that we've been talking about, Nevada seems the one most likely poised to flip to the other side. And I want to just say one thing, too, because this is the second time you mentioned younger Latino voters. I mean, I was out there two or three months ago now. And when we talk about the dynamics of, you know, the Democratic coalition being chipped away at, Trigvi, you mentioned Gillespie in Virginia. When I was out there, what I was told was that the Republicans had set up a voter registration storefront in East Las Vegas, and they were dumping money into it just dumping money into it. Whereas the folks that I was talking to, not part of the, they were all Democrats, right? Big D Democrats or lean big D Democrats, but they weren't part of any official Democratic Party institution. They were out doing this on their own, working their tails off across the state, not only in Clark County, which is Vegas, but also Washoe County, which is Reno and up in Elko, and almost always understaffed, continuously underfunded. So we should not underestimate, and I think we should also use it as a reminder, that the Republicans are well-resourced, well-staffed when they want to be from a professional perspective, and they are relentless. Because as you you noted, a Republican to win doesn't need to get 15% of the black vote. But if they get 1% more than they got previously, or if a candidate gets three or four percent more of the Latino vote than they did previously or another candidate did previously. Like, that's all she wrote. So one of the more progressive, younger people within the Lincoln Project, I was having a conversation with them about Latino voters not long ago, and it was almost impossible for them to fathom that Latino voters wouldn't be all in for the Democrats in the environment we're in. And I started telling them the story and I talked about this earlier, when Ridge, Engler, and Tommy Thompson were turning Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan from hard blue states to red states, they did it by going into Racine County, Macomb County, and around Pittsburgh. And these union guys, who had always been loyal Democrats, started voting on cultural issues. They had messages that appealed to them in and around cultural issues. And to be honest, like the Democrats have left themselves exposed on both some economic and some cultural value issues and some geopolitical issues to the messaging that Trump and Republicans have been pushing to them. The Hispanics who are first or second generation Americans, a lot of whom came from places without democracy, they don't like it if they buy into that Donald Trump is standing up that America is great and there's cultural issues or economic issues that resonate with them to some degree. They left some of those places for a reason. And you don't need to get a huge percentage of them any more than back in the day. If we could get 10% of union voters to flip and vote Republican, we were going to win time and time again because it's a game of small numbers. 
And I think that's going on with Hispanics. You know, Democrats have taken for granted union voters, union voters and that demographic now are the base of the Republican Party. There's no reason to think that those who are working Americans who are Hispanic wouldn't be open to some of the same messaging. And they, too, tend to be more religious than your average upper income white person. But for some of those first, second, third generation Latino Americans, because they are Americans born and raised here, probably speak English at home. Haven't they done what we've always asked new Americans to do? They've assimilated. And so once you're an American, right, I've said this before, when you go to France, what is it full of? The French. When you go to Germany, what is it full of? The Germans. When you go to England, what is it full of? The English. Italy, the Italians, Spain, the Spanish, right? When you come to America, it's full of Americans, but that could mean anything. That's what's so great about America. I mean, as you guys know, my wife's Lithuanian. I can be lots of things. I can never be a Lithuanian. And yet she's an American, right? She got citizenship. She's an American. She's still a Lithuanian too. And that's what's so great about America. But the other piece of it is what you have to understand is if you're a first or second or third generation American whose family came from Nicaragua, Ortega's Nicaragua, the idea that you're going to want to go back to, you know, socialism is a loaded word. I mean, Noriega used that all the time. And so when you've got somebody who's saying, America is a great place and we need to lower the gas tax so that you can get to your job with your pickup truck, that's going to resonate. And you can't just take it for granted that just because of what their background is, that they're going to be your voters. Well, and I was saying this, Jeff, too, as we move on to the, our next state, just to close this particular little loop on, on the Latino community. First of all, it is very diverse. The guy that was my best man at my wedding is of Mexican descent. He said, you white people see us all the same. And, you know, there's differences in every ethnicity. You know, South Florida probably has 20 plus ethnic Latino groups. You know, Texas, as I mentioned earlier, is probably predominantly of Mexico, but because it shares a 1500 mile border. But I was talking to a supporter of ours lives in San Antonio, but was born and raised on the border and said, you know, when you say defund the police in the Rio Grande Valley, what folks down there here, Jeff, is you want to put half my family out of work because of the border. So many of the families down there have cops that are local, state, sheriff's deputies, border patrol, National Guard, interior, whatever it is. And if you don't live there, it doesn't necessarily make sense. It's like when you go to South Louisiana and half the family is, you know, in the fishing business and the other half is in the oil business, right? Like they live side by side, even if it's sometimes uncomfortable. And so you have to sort of take off your I'm smarter than you hat because I don't live there and go down and talk to folks who actually live in those places. And you find out like, why don't you spend a little time talking to the folks in these places, seeing what their issues are? And if you know that this is a bad message, that as a Democratic leader, like Joe Biden did during his State of the Union, you should say, we are going to fund the police, right? Because that seems to be the damn albatross that hangs around the neck of a lot of Democrats who I'm sure hate it and don't believe it. We can't underestimate the power of a populist economic message to people who are struggling economically, or maybe not struggling, but aren't too far removed from the struggle. They know what it takes to earn, to work, to pay your bills. We can't assume that the appeal of the America first Trump populism is only to white voters. Now, 
it does seem maybe a little incongruous with some of the overt racism <laughs> that goes into the MAGA message, but that's that's not as readily apparent to most run-of-the-mill civilian voters. I call them civilians because they're not living and breathing this stuff every day like we are, and that's most people. And I think there is a appeal. And again, this doesn't mean that Republicans in Texas or in Nevada are going to win a majority of Latino voters, but they don't need to. They just need to erode slightly the margins by which Democrats have historically won those voters. Yeah, think about it. In a state like Nevada, if they cut 4% off the Democrats' total with Hispanics, they will sink Sisolak, Cortez Mastow, and probably two of the three Democrat members of Congress. You know, this is slightly different, but I was part of a thing where there was a folks group in a big urban area. And we did a Democrat group and we brought up to fund the police. The African-Americans in the group were adamantly against defunding the police. They wanted it reformed, right? Right. They don't want no cops. They want better cops. And who the hell doesn't? Right. But you know who the people that were that were all about defunding the police? It was these young progressives who didn't even live in the urban area. They were from the suburbs. And it was the most amazing conversation. It would seem to me that the bigger the fan you are of defund the police, the further away from needing police you are. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so so you mentioned Catherine Cortez Masto. She's the Democratic United States senator, took over for Harry Reid when Harry Reid retired. So now she's in a dogfight with Adam Laxalt, who's the Republican nominee. His grandfather, Paul Laxalt, was a senator there a million years ago. Ronald Reagan's best friend. Ronald Reagan's best friend. Laxalt's sort of a gadfly. He's run for a million things. He, he sort of slipped into an attorney general's race years ago, served one term, lost again. Now he managed to get through this primary with the help of not only Donald Trump, but I think also Ron DeSantis. I think he's got a lot of, Trigby, correct me if I'm wrong, behind the scenes establishment help. McConnell, because his father is Pete Domenici. Right. His father is Pete Domenici, which is another story which the right goes crazy at me every time I bring it up because I think he should go by the name Adam Domenici. I think it's his father served honorably and I think he should use that name. But, you know, he's also a guy who has gone MAGA when he needs to. There was a story out of Texas a couple of weeks ago where he posted this, guys. He posted a video of himself standing inside a refrigerated truck that held the bodies of those 50-some migrants who had all died in the back of a semi with this really creepy grin on his face. And, you know, this is something that, that we'll talk about in a little while, but there is a strain, and maybe it's not even a strain, I'm going to call it a torrent because that's really what it is, of inhumanity with so many of these people. Now, Laxalt's always been a goon, but he's made some sort of transition, Jeff, into something that is the kind of thing that, like, Maybe it's what we saw when we left the party. We're like, oh, geez, like, screw that. Like, I don't want anything to do with these people. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that has happened in the last seven years under Donald Trump and the Republican Party is those elements, those characters who existed under the rocks in the dark spaces, who we knew were there as we were willing to accept their votes, but we never welcomed them into polite society or gave them microphones or positions of power. That has now changed. The permission structure to release your inner Cretan seems to have been manifested itself in people like Adam Laxalt, where they're very comfortable coming out there and ghoulishly implying that, you know, if you want to enter the country illegally, even if you're trying to seek asylum, well, you know, you might end up in this refrigerator truck like your pals here, where that somehow acceptable imagery and messaging that is not just accepted, but it's cheered. 
and his voters think it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. It's they cheer it. They're like, yeah, that's what they get, and that's what he's going for there. And it is becoming normal and normalized. That becomes a story for an afternoon, maybe in Nevada. It doesn't even get national legs that this kind of thing is happening. Where, you know, 10 years ago when you had Sharon Angle and the witch person from Delaware. Christine O'Donnell. Right. Christine O'Donnell, they were part of the national news every night about, oh, my God, look at these freaks that are running. But now they're just so damn many that nobody even bothers anymore. Well, we're guests at the freak show now, Jeff, I think is the problem. <laughs> right. I just think Laxalt takes Sharon Angle, right, and puts Sharon Angle in a prettier package in a post-Trump environment where... You know, like he can get away with it. And the other thing, I mean, Cortez Masto isn't Harry Reid. No one is going to mistake her political acumen as being Harry Reid's. No, and as I mentioned previously, when I was out there, you could feel the political vacuum that Senator Reid left when he died was tangible. It was palpable. If Harry Reid were running against Adam Laxalt, it'd be like that scene in Pulp Fiction where the guy says, I'm going to take him apart pipe by pipe. I mean, Harry Reid would be completely dismantling the guy. I'm not sure what Cortez Mazda's campaign isn't doing that. That, coupled with Sisolak struggling, is why the national Republicans and McConnell world view Nevada as their best pickup opportunity. I mean, that's where they're making their play. Ironically, considering Georgia's on the ballot again. <laughs> well, but like, think about it. Think about what they did there, right? Like they made a deal with the devil, with Trump on Walker. But only after they tried to kill him off first and it didn't work. To our earlier conversation from episode one about trying to engineer your own primary. Exactly. And in truth, with Herschel Walker, the reality is Herschel Walker shouldn't be running for the United States Senate. Herschel Walker needs to lose. I'm not saying that he shouldn't lose. He needs to lose. But it's kind of sad what they've done to Herschel Walker, right? Like, I guess he's an adult. He made his own decision, but he needs help. In Nevada, that top of the ticket, the governor's race, the Senate race has such big implications because those House races, you know, Timmer, we talk about this all the time. I don't know which two of the three are most endangered if the top of the ticket implodes, but they may all three be in danger. And, you know, if you're not holding the two Vegas seats as a Republican or a Democrat, those are the kinds of seats where a majority in the U.S. House is built in Vegas and the suburbs of Vegas. Right. In Henderson, Nevada is the kind of place that you build a majority in the U.S. House. And Democrats are in peril there in part because they're in peril up the ticket. Yeah, not to get too into the Nevada weeds, but I don't think we can underestimate, too, local issues like Lake Mead and the water shortage. When voters are pissed off, incumbents are in trouble. They're not interested in the most part about the existential or kind of the theoretical, ethereal arguments about climate change. They're interested. I don't have any fucking water. It's interesting because I want to say one thing about that before we move on to Missouri was I remember back in 2008, maybe early 2009, I, was, I still lived in California. And that was when California was really at the depths of the financial crisis. And somebody said to me, what's it going to take for something to actually change? And I said, not knowing that the three of us would ever be sitting here talking, I said, one day you wake up, you turn on the lights, they don't come on. You open the spigot, the water doesn't come out. You look outside, the garbage isn't picked up. You dial 911, the cop doesn't come, the fireman doesn't come. These are the things that like, produce change. The problem is, Jeff, to your point, is they create change 
in an almost apocalyptic way. Yeah. Lake Mead is empty. They're digging out, you know, bodies of gangsters from 40 years ago now, right? Lake Powell is empty. And this has massive effects for on order of 60, 70 million Americans, starting with California, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, where I live, Idaho, Wyoming. Look, guys, I live in the high desert, right? We may get hopefully a lot of snow in the winter, but like humidity here is 13%. I live in the second driest state in the country. And that's one of those things where it's a variety of things that is going on. But I think, Jeff, to your point, we should never underestimate the fact that voters maybe in the individual make us crazy, but in the collective typically have a pretty good idea of what's going on. All right. So speaking of places where people should have an idea of what's going on, let's move to Missouri. So there's a United States Senate seat there that's open. Roy Blunt is retiring. And Missouri is a very conservative state. We should remind most folks that Missouri is a southern state. It was a part of the Confederacy. It looks weird because the Mason-Dixon line runs along the bottom of it, but it is a southern state. Well, the interesting thing about that race is so Schmidt's the attorney general. Right. Now, he signed on to the bogus Texas deal after 2020. Yeah, and he's filed a bunch of suits against the Biden administration that had just been thrown out of court. You know, it's to the point where, and this is the thing that's kind of a big deal about what's happening in Missouri. Now, you have another candidate, John Wood, who John Danforth, who is a giant, you know, in Missouri politics, has a pack that's supposedly going to put $20 million behind Wood running as an independent. And Wood, we should note, was a Republican counsel on the January 6th committee. He's from Missouri and he is considering moving back home to run for that seat as an independent. Yeah, with 20 million bucks in super PAC money behind him from Danforth. And Danforth basically has said that both parties are just broke. You know, Missouri could get fascinating, right? So Schmidt's going to be MAGA. And so if Wood runs and Danforth follows through with his promise to campaign for him and put 20 million bucks behind him, you could have a really kind of a game-changing, fascinating dynamic going on there. Well, I'm all for game-changing and fascinating dynamics. All right. Before we leave Missouri, though, I don't think we could ignore Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley, he's a runner. He's a track star. There's this massive dichotomy, this massive divide between what ultra-MAGA voters look like and act like vis-a-vis some distorted view of masculinity, which is either super buff or super fat, but, you know, basically telling everybody to fuck off. There's usually a firearm involved. But the people who represent them are like Josh Hawley, who's got like little spaghetti arms. And he runs like he was afraid. And he was on January 6th. He put the fist up to get the crowd going. And then he literally ran for his life. And then he shows up at the Turning Point USA thing, you know, in a black T-shirt. You've got Ted Cruz there saying, my pronouns are kiss my ass. Like, None of these people are like good examples of masculinity in any form, nor is Donald Trump, nor is Ron DeSantis, right? None of these people are like, oh, yeah, that guy's like, that's a guy. That's a dude, right? No, these are all like, oh, God. Holly's announced today that he's got a book coming out either later in the year or early next year, and the title of his book is Manhood. <laughs> yeah. Is it his exploration looking for it or what? Yes, I think it's open to a lot of uh, late night uh, comics. You know, all those guys, right? Like part of Donald Trump's takeover and Reed, you and I talked about this so often during the primaries in 2015, particularly when Trump would go after the wives. You know, he went after Jeb's wife. He went after Heidi Cruz. 
you know, and we had talked about this, if Mitt Romney had been on that stage and somebody had talked about Ann that way, or even more so, if Donald Trump had said those things about Laura Bush and W were on the stage, George W. Bush would have gone over there and, and stuck him. a cowboy boot up his ass. Oh, yeah. It would have been fabulous. And honestly, if somebody would have walked over and beat the living crap out of him, they would have rocketed to the top just out of the principle of it. Little Marco would have run over and gotten just a tiny kick in with his little Marco boot. Right. He'd have been the guy that went. (laughs) His little boots. Right. But um, I think the thing with Holly, this is the thing that's got to be driving him nuts. Liz Cheney is just handing it to him. I do want to say that, and Trigvi, you and I might have spoken about this, that with her presentation during that last January 6th committee, she did take a scalpel to the manhoods of people like Holly and McCarthy and show them just to be the gigantic cowards that they are. All right, let's get to these final states. They're big states. They're important states. Florida, guys. So Ron DeSantis doesn't have a primary. You know, he's got bags and bags of cash in the bank. The Democrats have Charlie Crist, who's literally been every stripe of Republican, Democrat, independent you could be, and he's still somehow hanging on, running against Nikki Fried, who's the agriculture commissioner. It's one of those weird things where Chris, maybe it's just on the strength of name ID, seems like he has an edge in the primary, but probably gets crushed in the general. Freed, I think, is probably a more dynamic candidate, probably still very uphill climb for anybody against DeSantis and the powerhouse that he's created. But what do we, how do we look down there? Because obviously this is a precursor to a theoretical DeSantis presidential run. Well, it shows how quickly things can change in politics. When DeSantis was elected in 2018, it was by a statewide margin of less than 31,000 votes. It was, you know, a fraction of a percent, barely won. And I think over the last four years, Florida has become much more red than people attribute it to be. No national prognosticator is looking at Florida and thinking, boy, Ron DeSantis is going to have a hard time getting reelected in a state he only won by 30,000 votes. It's just assumed that he's going to walk to reelection. Now, I do think that the prohibitive favorite, and I don't think that the Democrats in this climate are going to mount a serious challenge to him, but there's a lot that could still make Florida competitive. There's local issues, there's racial issues. In fact, we don't know how many of those votes that voted for DeSantis in 2018 and then again Trump in 2020 have died of COVID because they're older white voters. There's some unknowns, but it seems like Florida in the prohibitive cost of really competing in Florida is going to keep big national Democratic money away in the necessity of playing defense in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. Playing offense in Georgia is much more economically sound. Investing in Stacey Abrams is a better ROI than investing in Charlie Christ or Nikki Fried. I think with DeSantis, the governor's race there is going to be hard. But for DeSantis, it's all about setting up the presidential. I don't know, you know, in the last couple of days, I don't know if you've seen this, but he was in Tampa where he got going about woke corporations imposing ideology on the economy. And he's talking about how teachers are telling kids to change their genders, right? This is really happening. Yeah. So he's interesting to me from a democracy standpoint in the sense that the whole thing about basically trying to push companies out of having any sort of say about politics or anything beyond business, 
but he's more than willing to take their money. We used to have a word for that. I think it was called fascist. Yeah, well, I mean, it's literally Vladimir Putin telling the oligarchs business needs to stay out of politics. But oh, by the way, you have to fund everything I do. Well, and actually, Mitch McConnell said that very thing in the spring of 2021. Stay out of politics, but keep the money flowing. DeSantis is an illiberal threat in the sense that he is going after institutions using autocratic tactics of threats, repression, and violence. Not violence, but threats and repression. Yeah, but violence will come next. Well, violence may come next, and certainly, you know, that precedent, Donald Trump set it. So in the case of Nikki Fried or Chris, whoever gets through against them, what you hope is, is that they're able to start drawing some contrasts and laying some gloves to that and, you know, do some damage to him. And maybe they get lucky and squeak by with some breaks. But I think their role at a minimum is to lay some punches on the guy and see if he can actually take a punch. Because in truth, Ron DeSantis has never had to take a punch. No, he hasn't. And we've talked about that previously, which is if you spent any time around early stage presidential campaigns, you can very quickly tell who's going to make it, who's got the shot. And DeSantis has proven to me that he's got the will to do these things in the context of being governor of Florida, but not necessarily the ability to do it in the context of being a presidential candidate. All right, let's move west to the great state of Texas, the Lone Star State, my former home. So Greg Abbott running for a third term has gone full MAGA, full ultra MAGA. And if Abbott had just been a regular Republican, he would probably be winning by like 30. But he and his political consultant up in New Hampshire chose to decide that they want to have some quixotic presidential bid, you know, in 2024 as well. And he is the kind of guy who his ideology mixed with his actual failure as governor should spell his end, especially when facing a guy like Beto O'Rourke, who's well-funded. I think he's a natural political athlete, but it's Texas, so we shouldn't, you know, get too far ahead of ourselves. It's one of the most difficult races to kind of, I guess, objectively analyze. Emotionally, I look at a guy like Abbott and think he's just the kind of poser politician who followed the Peter principle. He's risen to the level of his own incompetence. He's a really shitty governor. He's not a good politician, but he might be in still the right state in the right year to withstand all of his failures. O'Rourke is another emotional candidate. They look at him and his God-given political ability and think, wow, he's the embodiment of all I want to see in a politician. He's the guy who can flip this red state blue. He becomes the embodiment of the hopes and dreams in maybe expectations that are even beyond his considerable abilities. So he can be the kind of candidate in Texas where he could run a lot of 48% races, but never be able to get to 50%. Yeah. I mean, he just barely lost to Ted Cruz in 2018. If he'd had another 10 days, he'd have probably beaten him. But, you know, that's the one of the things, too, which is, you know, I think Beto is a guy who wants to win. I think he wants to win the right way. But if you're going to beat somebody like a Greg Abbott, you're going to have to take the meat axe to him day in and day out and be ruthless about it because he is tried and true, right? I mean, it is still a more Republican state than it is a Democratic state. But I don't know how many people wake up in the morning, Trigby, and go, I need more Greg Abbott in my life. Greg Abbott's problem, and you talked about this before anybody else, Reed, because you know that state, you know, his problem was he was busy with presidential ambitions. And so that's what he was playing to. But I just think with Beto, it's going to be really hard because he's got to have the right environment around him. 
You know, Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player on the planet, but he wasn't winning championships until he had Scottie Pippen in the right environment around him. He has the potential to be a once in a generation politician. And maybe if you were from a different state that wasn't quite as red, he might be walking. But, you know, at the end of the day, would I like to see Beto O'Rourke beat Greg Abbott? Absolutely. Because I think Greg Abbott epitomizes the worst of the Republican Party. But if you had to choose between Beto winning and somebody said to you, the deal is he wins and Doug Mastriano wins. It's not a deal you take. And when people are investing their time and resources, if you're in Texas, I think you should be all in for them. If you're other places, you have to make sure that Shapiro and Whitmer and Evers are set. And if you're in a position where you can help all four, you should. But you got to put those other things first for the sake of democracy. But, you know, I hope all four of them win. All right, guys. So let's wrap up the day with my new home state of Utah and the United States Senate race here. Now, Utah is as ruby red as they come, maybe just behind West Virginia and Wyoming. Senator Mike Lee is up for reelection. He is running for, I believe, his third term. And the Democrats here made, a, I thought, it a very wise and savvy decision, which is Democrats make up about 13 percent of the electorate here in Utah. They chose not to field a candidate in this race. And Evan McMullen, who I've known for many years, ran for an, as an independent in 2016, is of the LDS faith, has Utah roots, is running against Lee as an independent. Latest survey out of the Deseret News, which we should understand is the LDS churches, they own that newspaper, had a survey out with, it was Lee 41, Evan 36. Now, Trigvi, you talked about, you know, being as close to 50 as you can be. If you're an incumbent two-term United States senator from the state of Utah, where your dad was the head of BYU, and you're at 41 in August, like, you got to be worried. Yeah, not only that, I was just thinking as you were saying that, you know, the unique thing about the Utah race is this. No matter how bad the macro environment, which has admittedly gotten a lot better for Democrats and has kind of gone to neutral, but even if it were to go back to not being good for Democrats, Mike Lee is still in trouble no matter what happens with the national environment because he should be up by a lot more than that, and he's well under 50%. And it's a huge deal if Evan McMullen wins, because like you alluded to, it's Democrats, Republicans, independents. It's a different coalition. And, you know, that's the kind of race that has the potential to sneak up on people. And the other thing is, I don't know that the NRSC and McConnell world and all those people, I don't think they're going to go all in to save Mike Lee because Evan McMullen is kind of better for him. Are you kidding me? If you're sitting at First Street Northeast and you're like, we got to go where and spend money where for who? Yeah, it's not going to happen. And you think Mitt's going to stand up and save him? Absolutely not. But, you know, the other part, too, and I've mentioned this on the show before, is that late in 2020, Mike Lee gave a speech when he was introducing Donald Trump, where he compared Donald Trump to Captain Moroni, who is a hero in the LDS faith, one of selflessness virtue, community above self, 180 degrees from who Donald Trump is. And there were a lot of, as I understand it, because again, it is a very unique society and a unique faith, is that a lot of people were hugely upset about that because Utah has a Utah nice thing, much like probably a, a Minnesota nice or a Wisconsin nice, right? Like it's almost Southern, right? Like they're never going to say anything bad about you to your face, but they wait till you leave and like they'll do it then. And I think that, you know, because 
so much of the state's politics, especially conservative and Republican politics, is dominated by the church in things that, guys, you and I, the three of us, will never see and never hear because so much of this happens at the stakes, at the churches, with the bishops, if it's going to happen, that Lee's in a lot of trouble because he can't even count on his own base. So he's going to have to go like out into the hinterlands where it's less LDS and more ultra MAGA. Whereas Evan, I know like me and my friends are going to vote for him if whatever that's worth. Salt Lake City Democrats are going to vote for him because they have taken the view of Evan is more conservative than I am. He tells me he's more conservative than I am. But if I got to choose, I'll be damned if I want Mike Lee back for six more years. It really looks like, you know, watching this one from afar, and I've known Evan for a few years now, and I think he's, uh, he really gets the nature of the fight he's in. He's bridging that nice with the knife fighter that needs to happen in order to topple an incumbent. But it seems like right and wrong is the central organizing principle that is defining this race. And it's not partisanship so much as the fact that among many partisan Republicans, Mike Lee is viewed as standing for unjustifiable behavior. And I think he's in trouble now for sure. I agree with that assessment that you've both laid out there. I think that the DOJ investigation, any added January 6th committee hearings, could really spell trouble for Mike Lee if it's divulged here, you know, if they show these nice screens about, you know, who Donald Trump was calling during those 187 minutes, when it's shown how many calls went to Mike Lee, those kinds of things could become a nail in his political coffin. And there's some cards yet to play here that could be very damning for Mike Lee. Yeah. And just on that note, real quick is remember, it was Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, that pointed not only Sidney Powell, the Kraken lady, but also John Eastman to the White House. So every time he says, I was looking for a constitutional answer to this, I believe, Jeff, to your point, he is one of the people most responsible for continuing Trump's actions in that time because he facilitated people who would go along with the lie and would redouble the fiction in Trump's mind that he won. All right, guys, before we get out of here, I'm going to put you on the spot. Jeff, give me one thing for the listeners. Give us something you want folks to know. I guess I want to leave with this warning or admonition. You know, we've gone through over two episodes, all these races across several states, many different personalities. We've dissected the fact that there's these cartoon characters, these existential threats to democracy, people like Doug Mastriano, Kerry Lake running in these states. It's so easy to discount them to say, oh, they can't win. These people are going to win in several of these states, maybe not in Pennsylvania, but maybe in Arizona, maybe not in Michigan, but maybe in Wisconsin. And a mixed night on November 8th this year, a mixed night where Doug Mastriano wins and Tony Evers wins, you might look, well, okay, that's not all bad. But it's really, really bad for what 2024 poses and what we are likely to be then facing in January of 2025. Trigby? I agree with everything Jeff said. I guess something that's going to be on my radar screen in August, and this is kind of far afield, there is a primary in Minnesota 5 where Illa Omar is running against Don Samuels. It's not on anybody's radar screen, but Illa Omar is in really the race of her life with Don Samuels. I do not know if Don Samuels will win. He's a Jamaican immigrant, but Don Samuels has Illa Omar at least on the ropes. 
which is a big deal. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that I'm going to be watching is, of course, in Wyoming, there are a lot of Democrats who appear to be crossing over. Whether that's enough for Cheney to ultimately prevail against Hagman, you know, she's got an uphill fight. But what that number is, is going to say a lot to me about where American democracy sits. Well, and for me, guys, I think what I'm interested in seeing is whether or not there is a significant erosion for Republican candidates among older white voters. My sense of this started back when Russia invaded Ukraine and people like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, J.D. Vance, and all these people were all in on the pro-Russia side. I think a lot of them have leavened those positions, but some still haven't. But I think that that was, you know, Russia, for so many of us, right, was the existential threat to our lives as children and young adults. And I think those memories don't fade quickly. I think that the January 6th hearings have brought to light for a lot of those voters that this is not how America is supposed to work. I don't like seeing this stuff. I don't like Donald Trump. And if people are going to accept his support or act like him, I don't really want any more of that. And then I think lastly, just, you know, for folks like my parents, they do have some concern for the future for their grandchildren, let's say. And I think that they see one party who they've always belonged to, the Republican Party, doing nothing but being carnival barkers and a level of ugliness that they don't see as the kind of people they want to associate with. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how that works out. Well, before I let you guys go, Jeff, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Timmer. I promise to be entertaining and not safe for work. <laughs> Timmer, you're one of the best followers on Twitter. That's right. Guys, follow Timmer. Yeah, follow me. Timmer. You'll learn the obvious, like Ted Cruz is a dick and a whole bunch of other right. stuff. <laughs> There's really only two things you know you, you need for wisdom in life, which is whatever Bugs Bunny cartoons teach you and that Ted Cruz is a dick. So, all right. And Trigvy, where can we find you? You can find me at Trigvy, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson, O-L-S-O-N on Twitter. All right, gang, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. As always, I want to thank you guys for joining me again. I think we'll probably do it again sometime as we get into September, maybe mid to late September and give everybody an update on how we see the world. Everybody out there, thank you for listening. Tell your friends, tell your family, rate five stars, follow us. And until next time, we'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.